This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I want to believe that Hello PhD is the Coast Guard in this analogy, but I'm not sure. So we hope that people are hearing a resounding like, yes, you should be doing this. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we discuss new research showing that career and professional development during graduate school only has upsides. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 161. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan, happy back to school. I know, it's coming so quickly. I can't believe it. it. I feel like the summer flew by. So fast. It always does. You know, it's a big day in my house. My kids are preparing to go back to the classroom in person tomorrow morning for the first time since March 2020. I never would have thought it would be a year and a half <laughs> when they first wow. came home, but uh, they are excited. My daughter's had her clothes laid out for weeks. They're, they're happy about it? They're They're not nervous? Nobody's... I mean, that's a long time to not be in that routine. It is. I think my, my daughter, who's an extrovert, is is extremely excited. I think my son's indifferent. But yeah, they're, they're excited to see their friends and, uh, and see their teachers and be back to their school for the first time in a year and a half. Um, and I know I'm excited too. I know. It, when I was thinking about how fast the summer went, I think it's because I was, I was thinking to myself like, oh, you remember that two-week period <laughs> when I could go to the office? That was awesome. Those were the days. Well, I hope everyone out there is is staying safe, and if you've had the opportunity to get the vaccine, that you've done that um, so that we can all move forward um, and be done with this pandemic. Well, Josh, we do have something here to drown our sorrows. You want to tell us what it is? Sure thing, Dan. So this comes from our state of North Carolina. Uh, this is the Through My Trees India Pale Ale from New Anthem Brewing in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, Wilmington, one of my two favorite towns in North Carolina, besides the one that I live in, uh, Wilmington and Asheville, two wonderful places to visit. But this one's down by the coast. And we're back on the IPA train this week, Dan. What do you think of this one? Well, you know, I, we had to clear this one out of the uh, fridge because IPA free fall is coming. And oh, that's true. if we don't get this in, it's going to be a while. Last chance. Fall will be here soon. Last chance. So yeah, this one, um, you know, they, they list the hops as Citra, Falconers, and Mosaic. I don't think I've heard of Falconers hops before, so that was a new one for me. There's a farmhouse yeast. It's 7.2% ABV, which is pretty high gravity, and it is a very full-flavored and full-textured IPA. Uh, it'll it'll hit you. Yeah, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show, Dan, but, but folks who have listened throughout the years and don't skip the beer segment will know that historically I was a big fan of the low-gravity IPAs, the Session Ales. And I don't know what it is, Dan. I have really been enjoying these these high six, low seven, mid seven percent IPAs. That extra sweetness and richness that I think you get from that higher gravity. Although I do try to get the shorter pour uh, when I get these uh, higher gravity beers. Yeah, this is the full pint. I think the thing that is making you enjoy them more, Josh, is covid uh, a <laughs> ongoing pandemic, a little bit higher alcohol content goes a long way. It just takes a little bit more to, to get me through these days. And I will give credit. Uh, my wife actually brought us this beer. She was down in the Wilmington area with a friend. Uh, I think it was a couple months ago now. And uh, 
maybe it was during that brief period of time when we could do stuff. <laughs> and she brought us this beer back. So thanks to her. Yeah, thanks to her. Um, also, thanks to some of our new Patreon patrons. Josh, you want to tell us who they are? Yeah, we have two new Patreon patrons. <laughs> want to give a special thanks to Cody and Lucky. And this is great timing because I also wanted to say special thanks to all of our, our supporters and patrons. Uh, we actually got some new equipment here in Hello PhD Studios. Uh, we, we purchased a new upgraded mobile recording setup that allows us to go out and record on the go out of my house uh, in the great outdoors. And that has been especially helpful um, as we've needed to not be indoors. So the interview you're going to hear today um, I did with Dr. Becca Layton was actually in person uh, in her backyard using this brand new recording setup. And what this hopefully will give you is nice studio quality sound uh, on the go. Our last one had sort of a directional microphone. And this was in some of the earlier episodes when you would kind of take it and set it on a desk and you know, it would pick up the person you were interviewing pretty well, but then you would sound like you were off in a distant galaxy and it, you know, it was more <laughs> echoey. So th- I think this is much improved sound quality. So again, we do appreciate our patrons. We also appreciate Promega. So cloning your gene can be one of the biggest headaches of your project. Before you jump in, make sure you're using the best method for your gene and target locus. If you need help deciding, just check out the cloning guides in the Promega Student Resources Center for advice on choosing a method, as well as tips for making your experiment is success. Visit promega.com slash hellophd to learn more. Also, Dan, special thanks to our friends at BioBox. Research can move slowly, but you don't have to. Accelerate your research with BioBox Analytics. Analyze and explore your genomic data on demand with no coding skills required. You can sign up for free at biobox.io. All right, Dan, let's get on with our topic of the week. All right, Josh, I think we have hyped this interview and the amazing sound quality that everybody's going to expect, but is there a topic that you two were discussing out in the backyard? There sure was, Dan, and I want to give a little spoiler here up front, but we are discussing with Dr. Becca Layton a a new research publication that just came out last month in PLOS Biology, and Dan, you and I are both authors on this study. Humble brag. I am? You are, Dan. Even you. Whoa. <laughs> still still putting it out there in the literature, Dan. Great job. Uh, you know, I, I just, I'm, it's publish or perish, Josh, and I wasn't ready to perish. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's hear from Dr. Layton, and then you and I can uh, pat ourselves on the back for just being amazing contributors to the scientific world. I'm going to buy his t-shirts, world's best 19th and 20th authors. <laughs> All right, Dan. <laughs> I'd wear that. I'd wear that. Here's my interview with Dr. Layton. My name is Rebecca Layton, and I am a Director of Professional Development Programs in the Office of Graduate Education at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, And what that means is I get to work with biomedical, PhD, and postdocs on their career and professional development. We do one-on-one meetings. We build programming. I get to help mentor and work with student leaders from our clubs and um, also do some scholarship and research in graduate education and workforce development. That is a really cool job, and I think any grad student would be lucky to have a Becca 
at their institution that they could go talk to about careers and professional development? Why, thank you, Josh. Um, In fact, it is really inspiring for me to be able to do this job because having been both a grad student and postdoc and um, feeling lost at times in my own career development, uh, I was lucky to have some resources that I could go to later in my career and really, really wished that I had done that earlier. Um, So it feels really meaningful um, to me to help people not have to feel like they hit that panic button, but actually make it a thoughtful and dare say exciting career transition. My goal is always for folks to move through the what do I do? How can I get there? What steps do I need to do to be competitive and actually feel excited about that next step, not just uh, dread or scared or what am I going to do next? Yeah. And I say it all the time. The goal of grad school is to help set you up for some career after grad school. So um, I'm glad there are people out out there like you helping students make that transition. But the reason you're here today, though, is not to talk about your work directly working with students, but you actually do research on professional and career development of graduate students. And we wanted to talk to you today about a paper that just came out in PLOS Biology, and it is titled A Cross-Institutional Analysis of the Effects of Broadening Trainee Professional Development on Research Productivity. So from that title, uh, that tells me that you did some research looking at whether trainees spending time engaging their career development during grad school actually has an impact on their progress in their research. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Josh. Um, So we're fortunate that we have a group of directors in our office that uh, is able to contribute to scholarship and graduate research education. And so one of my colleagues that I work very closely with, Dr. Patrick Brandt, and then Dr. Pat Brenwald, who's our faculty career development liaison, we've worked together to develop this over many years, um, predating even our NIH BEST program, where one of the key questions by NIH BEST that was asked was, how does professional development activity impact graduate students and trainees? Both, is it helpful? If so, what things are helpful? And does it delay people? And if so, you know, what does that look like? And so one question that we had was, um, we hear from faculty and students as well, that they're concerned, you know, should they be participating in professional development? How early, how much? Um, Is it going to slow them down? Is it going to help them? And so the NIH Best Consortium is helping to answer some of those those questions with evidence-based research. So, so really quick, let me jump in. So for our listeners who may not be aware, can you tell us a little bit about what you've mentioned this NIH Best? Sure. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, thanks. The NIH Best Consortium is broadening experience in scientific training, BEST. And the NIH Best uh, Consortium is a group of 17 schools nationwide funded by NIH to answer that question experimentally. And so for people who opted in to participate, um, how did it help them? What what was effective? What was ineffective? For people who didn't participate, they helped serve as the control group. Um, so it's not a perfect study, but the idea was that across different types, public and private institutions, small and large, um, geographically distributed across the country, what were these effects and how might they differ? And so the idea of banding this together is that if we all collect similar data, we can ask these questions on a wider scale than just our individual institutions. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of power there, not just saying, well, here's what we observe at our institution, but is this something that is happening with students and trainees all across the country at many different sites? 
Yeah, and a great point, um, you know, which is uh, a limitation is that it is observational data, right? So we can't tell you, like, you've been assigned to the professional development group and you've been assigned to the no-help group, right? That would be unethical. and That would be most grad students. That would be, be, unfortunately, many grad students who don't have access to this. Um, But the idea being that um, we'd have sort of a pseudo-control group of folks who decided or didn't decide to participate. And as always with observational research, there's a caveat that there could be other influences about why people may may have chosen to participate or not to participate. But that it's a reasonably good snapshot. Um, just like if you think back to smoking, um, before we had robust studies around that, there were quite large effect sizes that appeared in observational data that suggested that smoking may not be good for you, which was then corroborated later. Um, again, because you couldn't ethically say you're going to be in a smoking condition and you're not going to be, right? That just wouldn't be um, wouldn't be okay. And so similarly, with a lot of career development research, we're a bit limited in our ability to do um, randomized controlled trials. And yet, we can do some really high quality evidence-based research and use um, statistical analyses to do controls, look at how much power we have from the statistical term of power in that um, can we find an effect if there's an effect there. And as you said, looking across institutions to make sure it's not specific just to one geographic region or one institution, even though that is still good data, it's better data when you have more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So before we get into some of the key results from this paper, uh, tell me a little bit about what type of professional and career development were students at these best institutions participating in during their training? That is a fantastic question and one that we spent a lot of time trying to elucidate in the best consortium. Um, And so one thing that we did a lot of was defining what do we mean by professional development? And so that may sound silly, but what's the difference between a workshop and a seminar? That could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself. (laughs) And it was a lengthy discussion on what's the difference between experiential learning versus, uh, you know, like just taking in information. What about networking? What about um, going on a site visit? What about if you actually... if you actually go do an internship, right? All of these different levels, like what does that look like? What do we call that? What does that mean? And so even across institutions, we had a lot of challenges and how do we define things and what does it look like? Um, and so in the best consortium, we actually coll- collected standardized information across multiple years that were able to be compiled later in some of those categories. However, that data is not as granular as the data that we could collect directly from institutions, which we were able to use for this study, which connected both participation and career outcomes, which is pretty unique to be able to look over longitudinally over a five-year period, um, who's graduating, how long is it taking them, what publications have they completed, and what was their participation. And so for us, this allowed us to do something a little bit different than even what could be done with the national data set, because each of these schools um, opted to participate and share data from their individual schools for for this um, this group of consortium members that wanted to participate, which was um, 10 schools that opted in. And so to answer your original question, I think you said, how do we define it and what is it? It ranged a lot. Um, what we did is we had in our our subgroup of participants in the study, each of the groups defined their own high, medium, and low participation rates. And so our low is supposed to be a control group. So for most schools, that meant either zero or one, depending on some schools defined it a little differently. Like if you filled out a form to participate, did that count as participating or not? Right. So there's some nuance to that. But maybe that group could be no participation in professional and career development during grad school, or maybe 
you went to one workshop. Yeah, one it time. was it was like pr- cl- close to no or no, depending on how it was. And defined. you didn't even pay attention, right, when you were there. <laughs> well, I don't know that we measured that, but <laughs> but you know, could be. Um, so so there was sort of a control group of either and and again, it's not a perfect world. So could they have participated in their graduate schools or or uh, another organization that we didn't track for sure? But it meant that they didn't participate in NIH best training offered by their institution, which was the primary source of professional development that was tracked by each of these institutions. And I assume that's compared to some other groups that you're going to tell me about now. Yes, I am. So um, our control group is, again, none-ish. And then our uh, middle and high groups were, again, defined by institution. And so what we did is we asked each institution, say, compared to what you offered, please define it. And so some groups had number of credits and they had more offered for experiential learning and less for like a seminar that you would just sit through versus like a workshop where you would be engaged. Um, some just did straight number of hours. So um, they actually tracked for each per- seminar workshop etc. Like how long did you spend in them? And then they counted up those hours. Um, some institutions just tracked number of events. So it might have been a one or two hour event, but it still counted as a one event. And so part of the reason we wanted to do a meta analysis, not to get too much in the weeds, and what eventually became a mega analysis um, based on uh, some really great reviewer feedback that we got. What that allowed us to do was to actually standardize our measurement across all of these various types of measures that were all measuring the same construct, but in slightly different ways. So what did participation look like at your institution? Was it high, medium, or none control group? Um, And if so, how did that impact you? And then just to do a clean shot, because we said, well, some people may say, well, like, well, how did you determine high and low? We just did any and none as well as a separate analysis to say, like, well, you know, what if there, what if there's a dose response effect? Maybe we can see it in that high, medium, low. Um, or what if it's just everybody who did and everybody who didn't? So we did test it both ways. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So that would almost be like the medium and high group together exactly. against the people who really didn't do much of any professional development. Okay. So that's a really interesting question to ask. And I'm itching to know, so what, what did you find? Yeah, so um, our kind of punchline answer is, does it delay you to participate in professional development in any dose? And you mean delay you in your progress through graduate school? Right, delay you in your progress through graduate school. So and we measure that by time to degree or time to graduation. Did it take you longer to get through your graduate training? Um, And so the punchline there is the answer is it does not take considerably longer using the statistics that that we were able to employ. And if it does take a little bit longer, which some reviewers said, well, what if you just couldn't catch it and there's something there? It is not measurably longer enough. But surely it must. We would so care. what if you actually did see a different result where it took longer? Right. And so if it, if it did and it took you a month longer um, and you did a month internship, that would essentially be a wash, right? So yeah. Um, and so could we detect if it was a month longer, right? So we use a power detection. So a power of 0.80 is sort of considered sort of sufficient. Uh, and so at the levels, at a large or medium level of impact, um, would we be able to find an effect? And so we would, if it was a really small level effect, then um, depending on how small of the effect, we might not be able to capture that. So there is, it doesn't mean there's no effect, but if there is, it's so small that we weren't able to detect it. Yeah, so I want to I wanna sit here for just a second because I think this is pretty important information for graduate students out there, for um, those of us involved in graduate training, professional development of students, uh, that I think for a long time there has possibly been concern or even pushback at times from advisors thinking like, well, you know, the main role of a graduate student is to do their research and to make progress towards their dissertation. And yeah, this career professional development stuff is great, 
but to what degree is it going to slow students down or distract students from their primary objective, which is completing their dissertation work? And so what you're saying is from this work, which comes from data from 10 different institutions, that that doesn't actually look to be true at all, that even students who spend a considerable amount of time engaging their career and professional development actually are getting through graduate school um, just as quickly as those who really aren't engaging that at all. Yeah, and I hesitate to make too big a deal about it, but even trending almost a little faster. So we didn't see a significant difference, but if you look, there were some institutions where um, there were people actually graduating just a smidge faster. And so it was, again, I, I don't want to overblow that at all, but certainly not slower, right? Just a so, smidge faster if um, they were also engaging their career development. Right, yeah. right. And so again, we tried not to kind of overstate that because um, really, you know, essentially what we're saying is it certainly didn't slow you down. And so that was really the emphasize point. And so if you're thinking about doing career and professional development and you're worried, is this going to take me longer? You can manage your schedule and your time so that it does not have to. And looking across a broad swath of thousands of PhD students across the country, it did not in fact make them graduate slower. So I think that's a really the take home point um, for point one. Now, point two is, well, what about my productivity? Is it going to impact that? And so for sort of efficiency, we use time to degree as our measure. For productivity, we said, well, what about total publications? Um, and then we said, well, we know we're going to have somebody says, well, what about first authors, right? So we decided to test that too. So again, with both of those measures, the punchline is people are not significantly less productive. Meaning similar to time to degree and graduation, their research output as measured by number of publications and even primary author publications, also no difference between right. the students who did a lot of professional development, went to a lot of workshops, did internships versus the students who didn't really engage. Yes. Internships is actually a whole nother category, right, which I'll talk about in just a second. We yeah. consider that our high dose effect. Um, but, but yes. Um, and again, at each institution, if you look at the data granularly, you'll see some that were a little faster, some that were a little slower, um, you know, and you can, you can look in the paper and actually see um, thus high, medium, uh, low groups, as well as the control participation participatory groups within each institution where their differences in what direction were they. The really cool thing about the forest plot, which is what you get from a mega or meta analysis, is you standardize it across all the institutions. You use the effect size, how big was the effect, and what direction was it is in, in. And then you can actually see visually and get a, a numerical statistical number that says overall was there an effect. And again, you're not seeing people being less productive and you're not seeing people graduate more slowly. So what we really hope people will take from this, both students and PIs, is you should be engaging in professional development. It's not going to be of concern for either your time or your productivity. Does that mean you don't have to manage it? No, of course not, right? You've got to be smart about your time. You've got to think about how you're going to fit it in. Um, and even when we're talking with students one-on-one, -on -one, we talk with them about how will this fit into your timeline? When do you want to graduate? How will you fit in all the things you want to do, right? You've got to be strategic about it. But we hope that this will alleviate concern that has long been anecdotally present that we hear about, well, should people do this? So we hope that people are hearing a resounding like, yes, you should be doing this. And that ties into an earlier uh, topic that I think you all have talked about on the podcast as well, which is that many PIs were you know, rightly, rightfully concerned with, should I be putting my students through this if they're on an R01 fully supported funding for, from the federal government, they're supposed to be doing full-time research, you know, what are they allowed to be doing? And so the OMB, or Office of Budget Management, actually put a clarifying statement about, about that out a few years back. And they said, hey, not only should you, if you feel like it, like you should be, right? This needs to happen. And so you everybody should be is. doing career development, career development as yes. part of your training as a graduate student. Exactly. And this includes actually both grad students and postdocs. So funded federal 
grants of any sort include professional development time for any training. Even if you're funded on a research grant. Yes, yes, absolutely. Which I think was actually an unknown point prior to that. Like people just weren't sure. And so it was up to each PI to interpret that and sort of figure out, I mean, what does this mean? And so then it became very unambiguous to say, hey, I need to be doing professional development as a trainee. And PIs could feel really supportive of saying, yes, you should be doing professional development. And so I think that that's still something that's a culture change ongoing in academia. But we hope that having evidence-based research can contribute to to removing concern about that and promoting the idea that um, doing professional development is useful or at least certainly not hurting people. And so if it helps them figure out what they want to do and become competitive for whatever that is next, that uh, it is, it is probably worth it. <laughs> well, well, that's really great. And so, so Becca, this study just came out in July of 2021 as mm-hmm. we're, as we're recording this in August what has there been time for there to be a response to this, or what have you noticed has been the the response from from faculty or the training community or from trainees, students, postdocs? Um, what have, what have you heard has been the response to the publication of these results? Yeah, so I've seen it shared pretty widely in the graduate training and professional development world and the postdoc training professional development world. So two of the main organizations that advocate for career development training are the Graduate Career Consortium and the National Postdoctoral Association, who are both strong advocates of providing professional development and career training for uh, graduate and postdoctoral trainees. Um, So I think that there has been a lot of need for this type of study. And a lot of program directors want to be able to take this to their faculty and say, hey, if you were worried, I just want to like reassure you, here's some data, right? Like, and oftentimes faculty like to see data. And so that's a little bit more convincing than just saying like, this is something we should be doing because it's the right thing. But also this is in fact, good for your trainees and not going to impede them. And I didn't actually get to get to mention the, um, the third point, but um, internships, which are, is our highest dose, also did not have significant slow, uh, slowdown of time, even though schools used anywhere from one to three month internships or externships that were um, spread out over a long period of time, but part-time. Um, again, there was no delay, even though it was a higher dose um, and no impact on productivity. Again, we didn't want to make a huge deal of this, but in some cases, interns actually were doing a little better, but there's always some discussion over whether that's part of selecting people who are really prepared. And so we didn't, we didn't want to blow that out of proportion, but certainly they're not doing worse, right? So and, that's and good. So, so these are students, these internship students took some time, a month to three months or some amount, some mm-hmm. amount of time to completely detach from lab, completely detach from their research or or divert their focus in a more substantial way for a longer period of time. And even still, that didn't seem to impede their progress. Yeah, that's correct. And again, it varied. So one nice thing, since we did it over so many schools, was that each school had a very different internship program. So some do it um, in different stages of training, like fourth, fifth year. Some do it um, uh, part-time, some do it full-time. There's so many different models that were used. And so one nice thing is that that means we're at least not biased by the same limitations of any one particular model because it was quite diverse how people implemented it at their institutions. Yeah, so you're saying career development, opportunities for internship, there's not one perfect way to offer these things, but really, however they're offered to students, there's going to be likely a positive to the student, but without a negative to the research productivity and to the to the PI. Yeah. And I think there's more evidence-based ba- research coming out around what you just mentioned. What are the positives? And so some of those um, I think are still in progress as this data is kind of 
still coming in, right? Um, so another example that um, Tammy Collins and a team that I worked with as well, there's an elite consortium of site visits in this area. So for instance, one career outcome that we looked at was um, how likely were you to match with a job in your top career interests? How likely were you um, to match with a site visit that you went on compared to where you actually ended up getting your first job. And so as we have more data and as more people have completed professional development training through NIH Best and other programs um, that they've gone through, we can start to answer some of those questions with data to say, what are the outcomes of these? Were they successful? Which types were better and more effective? Which should we be doing more of? Um, and so I think some of those questions are still TB, TBD or, uh, or, or forthcoming. Well, that's really fantastic, and I'm glad that, that people like you are out there doing this work. And I guess lastly, we will certainly put a link to this article in the show notes. I always like to ask this, but I think coming from you, it would be uh, especially great for our listeners. So what advice would you give to our listeners, grad students, postdocs, science trainees who are out there listening? Based on your data, what advice would you give to trainees? Yeah, I guess I would say it's never too early to start career exploration and professional development. I have students come in their first year who are like, I think I might want to know what I want to do. Can we talk about it? Right. That's great. Um, it's also never too late. I have people come in who are like, I'm graduating in a month. And I'm like, awesome, let's talk. Um, but I guess, I guess the key message is at whatever time you feel like you have the mental bandwidth and space to be thinking about these things. For many people we see, you know, just anecdotally, this is around third year when you finish up your coursework, you're in your thesis lab, you kind of have a better idea of what your timeline is. That tends to be a time when people start thinking, okay, I'm really in it now. What am I going to do next? Um, and so as you're, whenever, again, whenever the spirit hits you, don't be afraid to explore that, whether that's going to a career coach or counselor at your institution, whether that is finding a club, a career cohort, we call them here that you can join, uh, whether that is going on my IDP and looking at different career options. There are many ways to participate both at your institution and nationally. NPA, the OITE out of NIH has some fantastic uh, career development, resiliency training, resources, all of that stuff. Whatever you feel like will support you during your career, communications training, conflict training, uh, management training, business skills training, whatever it is that you think might help you, use that as exploration. And whether or not you decide to go into that particular career path, those skills will still be, still be carried with you. And so I guess that's what I say is it's never too early. It's never too late. So get started now whenever that is for you. The best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago. The second best time is today. Oh, I love that. That's great, Josh. I love that. <laughs> Becca, thank you so much for talking to us today and appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh. Have a fantastic rest of your day. All right, Dan. That was my conversation with Dr. Becca Layton. Do we even need to remind people that it's important to do career development, Josh? I, I, apparently we do, right? Apparently this research wouldn't exist if there weren't questions about the benefit, but also the consequences of. And I think that's really what the paper was was trying to uh, discuss was, are there consequences to doing career development? Because we know there are benefits. And I think the take-home message of this, this study, Dan, was not a surprise at all to you or I, who have been huge proponents of doing professional development, engaging your career development during graduate school. And as much time as, as I've spent around students who have taken the time to engage their careers and their professional development during grad school, I am certainly not surprised. And I was really glad to hear Becca signal that there's some additional research that's going to be coming out, <laughs> looking not just at the fact that doing professional development does no harm, but actually 
there are benefits as well. Because, you know, I think that was probably true for, for you, at least, during graduate school. But I see it all the time with students that I work with, how thinking about their careers and their next steps and these ways that they engage in science that give them energy really helps keep you motivated as you're doing the work of getting your dissertation finished. Yeah, and I actually, I'm going to push back a little bit because I think I am surprised or I was surprised that taking time out to attend workshops and seminars and uh, meetups and things like that around career, even internships, I would have expected just without prior data that that would take extra time. This is time out of the lab. I'm not writing my dissertation. But I think what I hear you saying is doing those things actually is a catalyst. It, It helps improve all the other things. So instead of me only sitting in lab and getting burned out and going very slowly and scrolling Facebook. Now I have something to work toward. Now I'm excited about the next step. Now I want to finish this. um, And I've got support from people who are trying to help me finish because they want to hire me or I've got a career that's, that's exciting to me. And I'm doing these extracurricular things that give me energy. And when I have that, my normal day-to-day work at least stays the same or gets better, right? And we weren't able to show that it was much faster, but it's not a negative. I think it's a reminder of why you're doing what you're doing, why you're in graduate school. Um, Or in some cases, it helps to bring that into focus if maybe your reasons for going into graduate school change for you over time, which happens to to a lot of us. No, no, I'm not not familiar (laughs) with that one. You know, Dan, I was talking to a graduate student this past week who was kind of in those those murky middle years of, of graduate school around your, your third year, your fourth year, where you can't see the beginning, but you also can't see the end mm-hmm. yet. And I think that is a major reason that graduate students get demotivated. And I think demotivation is one of the big pitfalls that, that many PhD students encounter, where things aren't really moving forward in a tangible way and there's no real set schedule. And and this was actually the the piece that I was talking to this graduate student about is the fact when you come into graduate school, this this fact that there's no set schedule, you can make your own hours, you can do whatever, is, is like this great, seen as this great thing. But there's a negative side to that coin as well because it's very easy to just get lost and very easy to lose that motivation because sometimes your progress is not very tangible. And I think what engaging your career can help remind you of is the fact that this graduate experience that you're having is a stepping stone along the path to something else and your whole life is not going to be (laughs) sitting in this amorphous timeline, uh, trying to get some experiments to work. Yeah, your description, it it called up an image for me of, you know, these people who swim long distances between places, they swim the English Channel, or they swim from Florida to Cuba, or whatever it is. I don't know how far people can swim. But you you said these murky middle years. And graduate school, you start out coming in as an undergrad where you're on a firm foundation, and you dive off and you start swimming. And in that third year, you are land is not in sight behind you and land is not in sight in front of you and you are already exhausted and you're expected to just keep going, keep going, keep going. And and who knows? Like I think you you said you lose sight of what it is you're going toward and that is exactly how it feels. You're just in the middle of a body of water and 
get, getting these experiences where you can start to focus on career, I think, gives you that glimmer of land on the horizon. It just gives you that hope to, to keep pushing, to keep swimming, that the end is possible and it's in sight. And so hopefully people who do these experiences, they get that sense that that there there is a horizon to swim toward. Well, and you know, if we can if we can further uh, uh, beat this analogy, uh, I, I th- sharks can we put sharks in <laughs> it? Definitely sharks. But you know, in those first couple of years of graduate school, in lots of programs, I think you have a lot of directional beacons and directional buoys guiding you on the path too, because, you know, you're starting and maybe you're doing lab rotations and that's under a set schedule and you've got classes, your first semester and your second semester, and you have these set milestones. And I think that's helping you see your progress that you're actually moving forward. But then eventually you finish all that and you get past the major hurdle of you complete your qualifying exam. But really between that I'm almost picturing you finish your qualifying exam and suddenly it's just the open ocean in front of you That's and right. you can't and see land. And you start land. veering off a little bit. You right? can, you can. If you, if you if you start to curve, <laughs> you don't even know that you're doing it. You feel like you're going straight. I want to I want to believe that Hello PhD is the Coast Guard in this analogy, but I'm not sure. <laughs> we are. So make sure you have your satellite radio with you on your swim, then you can get podcasts. <laughs> your podcast. Okay, later. it's dead. Uh, the analogy. But you know, dead. Dan, this reminds. I think we are. We are speaking of getting off course. I think we are getting way off course. But this reminds me. I think we should do an episode on staying focused during your middle years of grad school. But I'm just saying, maybe that would be a great episode we should do. Josh, I don't want to leave this topic without letting people who are listening know where they can find programs like this, where they can find resources to do career development, because I know UNC is doing great work and part of the the best program, they are making it a priority, but not every institution has that. And so are there terms, search terms or offices on campus that students should be talking to so they can tap into some of these resources? Yeah, there sure is, Dan. And I'm, I just want to reiterate a couple that that Dr. Layton mentioned. Um, specifically, one, for, for listeners in, in the United States, but also I think there are resources available um, here for, for anyone. This is through the, the National Institutes of Health, um, the Office of Intramural Training and Education, or OITE. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but they do lots of, of seminars and workshops for many facets of, of graduate student professional development. Uh, there's often a focus on, on wellness and mental health, too, which can be a really important and related topic. Uh, so we'll definitely put a link to that um, also uh, mentioned the Graduate Career Consortium, or GCC, and this is another great resource for individuals interested in career and professional development. Um, uh, you can actually become a member of the GCC, and so uh, and they have an annual conference that I see on their website is, is virtual this year, but we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But, you know, lastly, I would just say informally, even if you are at an institution where there isn't some some sort of formalized professional development and career development opportunities. One thing that can be be really powerful is talking about your career, talking about your interests, talking about your next steps with other students and trainees in your program. I think 
it's certainly something that together you can brainstorm. Maybe you can reach out to possible speakers in your town or in your region um, and invite them as a group. Maybe create your own professional or career development um, group. I know that's something at, at my institution um, that we have, and that's very much student uh, student-run, student-centered. We have a group of students great. interested in business and entrepreneurship, interested in science education or writing, uh, interested in policy. So uh, this is something you can do. You could create a career exploration group of students in your program. Yeah, and, and it doesn't need to be 50 students. It could be three students, and you're going to have that camaraderie and that support. Uh, people looking for opportunities for each other, bringing in topics and speakers, leveraging their networks. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be this huge uh, group of people to be successful. That's right. It could be you and, and two other friends in your program getting together for a beer or a cup of coffee every other Thursday afternoon. And and that enough, you know, that camaraderie um, or just that meeting on the calendar might be the time, the intentional time you need to start focusing on your career and your next step. And it's a lot easier to do something like that um, with some other people. And you all need to be doing it. It's not like you're the only one in your program who should be doing this. All right, Josh. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to Dr. Layton. Um, Because I like to publish every 15 years or so, (laughs) I really need to get started on my next subject. So stay tuned. That's right, Dan. Uh, we'll make sure that we talk about our next paper on episode 783 in the year 2035. Perfect. I'll look forward to it, Josh. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's show. If you have a question or topic idea you'd like for us to discuss on a future episode, we would love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. We love your feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks so much to the ongoing support from all of our patrons like Cody and Lucky. Excellent, Josh. Well, I'm, I'm excited. We've got quite a few exciting interviews lined up for uh, upcoming episodes, some of them recommended by our patrons, some of them just through research that we've done and so uh, stay tuned this fall I think things are going to be continue to be exciting in the world of Hello PhD I'm looking forward to it Dan I'll see you next time we'll see you then